0: Listen, we're going to be talking about grief this morning, and before we get into all of that, I have one bright spot of the message, so cling to it if you're looking for a bright spot this morning. I was at the hospital this week. One of the ways that a pastor gets to date his wife is when people have babies, and you go visit the baby in the hospital. So please keep having babies, okay? We love to go on dates. So we got to go off to the hospital this week and welcome little, now bring out your first year Spanish for this, okay? Okay. Sada'i is her name. Sada'i Hurley is, uh, has been born, and she is healthy. Mom is doing amazing. They plan on being here second service, so awesome to, to have that going on. I was asked, actually, while I was there, how often do you go to the hospital? And I said, well, you know, a fair amount, I suppose. And And I was thinking about it. In light of this week's message, the only time I go there when it's good news, really, is when a baby's being born. All the other uh, options really are there for more negative kinds of things. And and that's really where we're going this morning with the message. There's a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman called Our God is in Control. And one one of the lyrics says this. This is not how it should be. This is not how it could be. But this is how it is. And our God is in control. I want to take you this morning back to your last calamity. I don't know when that was. Maybe it was fairly recent. Maybe you're walking through something right now. But maybe it was a phone call or a conversation or a funeral that you attended. But I want you to think about the last time you were deeply grieved. What were some of the sights and what were some of the smells and what were some of the things that you heard? What were the things that stood out to you in that moment as you began to to deal with this? This reality, this is how it is. I want you to think about that. And this morning, my prayer for us as a church is to think biblically about grief. To think biblically about how we walk through suffering. There's a lot of help offered with different emotions. And this emotion that we're talking about is obviously a deeply profound and very moving and powerful force in our lives. It's facing the truth of a fallen world and trusting the creator of that world at the same time. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote where he says this, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. He goes on to say that it is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why does it seem to be the case that this is true? It's not necessary that God has said more or less about suffering and pain in the word. He's really dealt with with all four emotions that we're going to look at in our brief series. He's he's spoken a, a ton to us. But it's just that I think in pain there's an urgency. And sometimes in our suffering there's a removal of this this veneer of self-reliance that we can walk around thinking that we're it's up to us. Thinking that we're somehow in control. When our world caves in, that's taken away. And we realize that's not true. And so many of us seek God and maybe obey God most intently when we're walking through our dark night of the soul. Now grief has kind of a growing effect. In my 20s, I was, uh, I was a full-time student. I was working two jobs, and I was involved deeply in ministry. And my hobby, uh, I didn't have much spare time, but when I did, my hobby was breaking down in my old beater car all over San Jose. That's really how I spent my free time. And one such time, I remember the date was April 15th, because I broke down in front of the post office on Meridian, Meridian and Hamilton, and I remember it was April 15th because it was jam-packed with people getting their tax returns in. And there was a police officer out there directing traffic. And there I was, broken down. And so I was able to call my then-girlfriend, Becky. And, uh, and she graciously came and she was going to rescue me. Um, but in the days before, we walked around with uh, things in our pocket that talked to satellites and let us know all exactly where we all were and had a communication in our, in our pocket called a phone uh you made one phone call and then you waited for the person to come and get you right so i'm sitting here i clearly explained the directions of where i was to my soon to be uh fiance and um and she clearly heard something different and so for the next probably hour and a half we sat probably 200 yards from each other while i was waiting for her going hmm where is my soon-to-be fiancé. Once again, our relationship survived that little trial. Here's why I bring that story up. I can remember when I was driving my car, and I, was, I think I was between ministry uh, and, and school at the time, and I just felt overworked and overburdened, and I'm driving along, and my car starts to act up. And as my car starts to act up, here was the first thought that came to my mind. You ready? This is not a good thing. Here it is. Come on, God. Come on, God. That's what I thought. That's what entered into my head. Now, here's why I say grief has a growing effect. Because when I look back on that response, here's what I think. I think, you know what? I had my sovereignty of God theology correct. God is in control of every molecule in the whole universe. And if there was one rogue molecule, R.C. Sproul says, then he's not sovereign. Because maybe that one molecule would, would thwart the promises of God. So I had my sovereignty of God theology correct. God, you could have stopped my car from not driving at this moment. But there was a sense in my heart that I thought, God, you owe me. I'm doing ministry for you. I'm training to be a pastor. I'm working my tail off. I'm overstressed. I don't need this problem right now. I had my sovereignty of God theology down. I didn't have my in this world you will have troubles theology down right and guess what God must have thought I needed a couple of hours to get that straightened out (laughs) because I wasn't rescued immediately I was rescued a while from then so that prayer was just an honest guttural reaction but it revealed some things about me and I'm trying not to pray the come on God as if he owes me something prayer these days because I value my two hours We should expect grief, right? Christian, non-Christian, Muslim, Mormon, Catholic, whatever you call yourself. Expect calamity. It's part of the human race. It's part of being in a fallen world is that you will have calamity come on you. You will suffer grief. But for the Christian, there are certain kinds of grief and sorrow that accompany the household of God. God's promised this to be true. Parents, you, motivated by love, not only allow grief to come on to your kid's life. This might be called kind of the natural consequence of someone's action. They didn't obey in a certain area. Their just punishment was just the natural consequence of that. That's you as a parent allowing that to kind of come on them. But even more so, you will at times bring grief into your child's life. Why? Well, I already said you were motivated by love to do this. But you have this hope that says something like this. I have a hope that by bringing this grief into my child's life, that this momentary and lesser pain will spare them, perhaps by instruction, perhaps by warning, of a longer-term and much greater pain somewhere down the line. Parents, nod your head if you're tracking with my thought process. Okay, You know where that instinct came from? It came from God. This is how God parents us. God models this throughout Scripture. There's a couple of heresies that, the, that, that have been taught in the name of Christ. In the name of Christianity, there are some mistakes about grief that have been taught. Let me take you way back um, several hundred years to a time when, in church history, grief was seen as a virtue. And catch this, people went out of their way to experience more grief. Aren't you glad we're not in this era anymore? Yeah. Go back and read about it for yourself. There was a season of time where people would quite intentionally bring grief into their life. Sometimes it involved self-beating. Sometimes it involved some, some long journey. Sometimes it involved uh, some sort of removal or denial of certain basic things to live. And so it was thought that it would be a virtue if you were grieving. Now, this was shown to be a heresy, and it really ties into something that's wicked. It's actually demonic, and it's called works theology. The mindset is this, God didn't accomplish the forgiveness of my sins on the cross, as the Bible teaches. Instead, the cross needs some help, and that help is going to be me helping God help punish my sins. And so it's a demonic, God-dishonoring heresy to say that I somehow punishing myself for the sin that Jesus rightfully took the punishment for, is going to somehow help the process out. It's me saving myself rather than trusting wholly and completely on Christ. Furthermore, it keeps people in bondage while it robs Christ of glory. Now, there's a second kind of grief, and that is happening today in spades. I would say it's equally destructive, and it's this. No grief ever should be going on in the life of a Christian. I decided this week to type in the name of a famous person who obviously is getting lots of um, lots of followers, and I thought, this guy seems to be a superstar in Christianity. I'm naive. I want to know, what, do, what does Christianity have to say about grief? And so I typed in his name, and then I put the word on grief. Here's some of the sermons that came up. You ready? Be positive or be quiet. The key of this message was don't speak about bad stuff, including your grief, because when you talk about it, you just give life to it. So don't even talk about it. Here's another one. Say no, capital N-O, to your feelings. Here's another one. You can handle it. Here was the gist of that message. Nothing is too difficult for you. Here's another one. Why you need to cheer up before things get better. The gist of this message that I took away, help yourself to a better tomorrow. Now, this is nonsense theology that finds no home in Scripture at all. The thought process behind many people is this. If you are experiencing grief, you either A, aren't a child of God, or you don't have enough faith, or you're doing it wrong. What's the result of that? More grief. I'm doing it wrong. I don't have enough faith. How do you know when enough faith is enough? What did Jesus teach? It's not the size of our faith, but the object of our faith, right? It's the faith of a mustard seed. It's not you growing your faith, and then things will get better. It's the fact that you've placed your trust on Jesus Christ, and he's solid. So it's another heresy, demonic and destructive. Jesus taught clearly, you can't pull yourself out of a puddle of anger, much less escape an ocean of guilt, an ocean of bitterness, an ocean of envy. You can't handle it, was his teaching. But I can. God can handle it. He created feelings. His ultimate goal isn't your happiness or necessarily a better tomorrow here on earth but your holiness. These are the things that I find in Scripture. Not this notion that says you shouldn't ever experience grief in this life. Well, here's the truth. Healing is available to us here today. Many people suffer at the hands of these, these so-called physicians, and it's not helping. It reminds me of a, of a woman in Mark chapter 5. She had this discharge of blood for 12 years. And it says, who had suffered much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and she was no better but rather grew worse. I wonder if you can relate. I wonder if you've invested time and effort and dollars into therapy and books and group sessions. Not only is it not getting better, it appears that your grief appears to be getting worse. Here's the encouragement. You know what this woman did? This woman, it says, had heard reports about Jesus, but one day he's walking by, and her head and her hand agree to trust in Jesus. And you know what she does? She does one simple act of faith, mustard seed-like. She reaches out, and she just touches the edge of his cloak. But it's a touch of faith. And in that reaching out, you know what happens to her? She's healed. Her head and her hand agree to trust just a little bit, and she's healed. Friends, that's available today. Maybe some of you have heard reports about Jesus, but you've not had your head, head and hand agree to reach out and trust in Jesus. Today it's available. The way God comforts us is both with compassion and with instruction. He addresses the head and the heart. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians this morning. I'm going to look at a single passage of Scripture. And while you turn there, of all that I could say about grief, of all the Bible talks about, I want to bring it back to this theology of God's sovereignty and build off of that this morning. Because that one massive truth is what's needed perhaps most in our time of grief and pain and suffering. As the sovereign God, God is proactive in our pain while we are always reactive in our pain. God is proactive in our grief. We are reactive in our grief. There was a conversation that happened two days ago. My wife and the two little ones are out um, to eat, and as we're sitting there, uh, mom gets up to leave, and Kaya says this, where did mom go, me, to get more napkins? Kaya says this, oh, is that so we won't spill? And it dawned on me, I thought, and so I, I was just kind of puzzled. I think I, think I said, kind of, like I didn't know how to answer my four-year-old much of the time, actually. But it dawned on me, I thought, you know, that's, that's God being proactive in our things. Like, like somehow bringing napkins is going to keep them from spilling. Oh, if that were only true, right? God never turns his head. God never is scrambling for plan B. God is not surprised. He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, He never for a moment takes pleasure or forgets your harm and your pain, but instead can take those things and redeem them in ways that right now, today, you and I cannot fathom because he saw them. I want to just land on one example this morning, and that's what 1 Corinthians 4 talks about, is is death. And I bring up death because that's a pretty big biggie, right? There's a lot of griefs that go on in life, but, but death is one of those biggies that kind of covers other, other areas as well. And in 1 Corinthians 4, we're given some instruction about that. Let me read it. It says this, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 13, uh, says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, lest you be like one of the disciples when uh, Jesus was talking about Lazarus, who said, well, if he's asleep, uh, he'll just wake up. He doesn't need us. And Jesus says it bluntly, he dieth. You know, he's dead. That's what I'm talking about. Let Let me just spell it out for you. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what uh, is being talked about here is death. So there's two negative commands for the Christians. Number one is this. Christian, don't be uninformed. How many of your problems in life are due to the fact that you had wrong thinking? A lot of them. A lot of them. You, you thought this was true, so you gave yourself to that. You thought this person was accurate, but they weren't. They were lying to you, and so that relationship blew up in your face. Wrong thinking leads to wrong acting, and it really leads to a lot of our problems in life. Paul constantly links problems to ignorance and blessing to knowing. This is why Paul built his message on teaching. Everywhere you see in the New Testament, he's, he invests himself teaching. Most of the time it says day after day after day, sometimes in large settings, sometimes in one-on-one settings, sometimes in smaller group settings. Paul taught. He taught precisely because truth understood and applied is the key that unlocks prison doors for people. Specifically, here, about those who've died. It's interesting that Jesus uses the term asleep. And the Bible carries that on when you think about the eternal life that Jesus offers to us, think about the word eternal for a moment. Doesn't that mean that it never ends, right? I mean, if it's going along and it has a break and then it picks up again, is that eternal? No. By definition, that is not eternal life. Christian, what do you possess right now? What are you living right now? You are living the eternal life. This is great news, friends. This means that at a funeral, when you see a dead body sitting before you, it's as easy for Jesus to rouse that corpse as it is for us to rouse someone who's sleeping. Rousing someone who's sleeping, even that teenager, really isn't that big of a deal, right? If nothing else, you move right to the ice bucket challenge involuntarily and you dump it on him. You'll you'll wake the person up. It's an easy problem to solve someone asleep. Think about this. Death is one of those hurdles That for God is as easy as saying, wake up, get up. I like how one theologian put it, he said, you know, it's not even fair to say really that we'll wake up in heaven because that implies that we've been missing for a season of time. And eternal life is uninterrupted. So that means, as the Bible teaches, to be absent from the body. And Some of you may have been there when a loved one's soul has disappeared, has left the body. And to me, it's, it's just so real right there. And I've been there several times with different people. It's just very real that I look at this shell, this tent, and I go, it really is just a tent. Dad's not in there anymore. To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. Uninterrupted. Christian, don't be uninformed about death. Don't be uninformed about a funeral. This is great news. It's comforting news. John Piper, who did a great sermon on death, said this. He's getting a little bit older. He's a retired pastor, although he still does a lot of work. And he said something to the effect of this. He said, it's not death that I'm afraid of. I've got that one figured out. It's the dying part that I'm still unsure of. I'm a little bit scared about that part. You know what he's saying? He's saying that final journey, that little transition period, I haven't done that before. I still need to give my anxieties about that one over the Lord. But death, that victory has been won. I know where I'm going. I love how you put that. shows the reality of experience. We don't just blindly kind of put a plasticky smile on and march forward. We're a little concerned about that little dying transition part. But Christian, I hope you have worked out in your head death and what eternal life really is. We're not to be uninformed, but we're also not to grieve like the world. Well, that begs the question, how does the world grieve? What is he talking about? He's drawing a comparison between those who would be found in Christ and those who would not be found in Christ. Those who are not found in Christ, he says, grieve like there is no hope, like there's no certainty beyond the grave, like the black fearful hole of death is it. being ignorant of the truth. Practically, the way that this works out is that platitudes are often given. I don't know how many times that you've sat in a funeral and someone has said, rest in peace, with with very little conviction or knowledge, if that's really true or really happening. It is a gut-wrenching thing to be at a funeral. I've sat at some funerals, and in the name of Christ even, the person up front was not able to offer hope, not able to offer the confidence that Jesus left his followers, that he tasted the bitterness of death so that we wouldn't have to. And it's heart-wrenching to be at a funeral like that. Jesus is recorded as having gone to a couple of funerals, He wept over Lazarus. And then he has a habit of ruining funerals, right? Nothing ruins a good funeral like waking the body up. Lazarus, come forth. Little girl, arise. What did he say to the mourners as he walked in on that one? Don't worry, she's just asleep. And the paid mourners go from mourning and crying and wailing to laughing at him. And he walks out with her. Lord willing, I will be doing some of your funerals one day. Now, I don't say that in some kind of a bizarre, you're like, oh, that's odd. It's not odd. Here's what it means. It means that many of us in this room have linked arms and said, we're doing life together. We're this local church. We're part of a greater, bigger local church. But of all the churches we could be a part of, we've chosen this family. And I want you to know that's that's been my commitment. I've been here for seven years. That's an answer to prayer. I've prayed to God, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but let me put my request out to you. I'd sure love to grow old with some people in one spot. So, Lord willing, I'll do some of your funerals. And at a Christian funeral, here is the difference. A Christian funeral is kind of a fruit salad of confidence, joy, sorrow, gain, loss, and it's all kind of mixed and tumbled together. Do you know that there's joy and laughter at a Christian funeral? Because we celebrate the victory. Bob's not doing so bad right now. Bob's troubles are over. He finished the race. He's with the Lord right now. Now, God help us. We're really struggling. We're going to miss this guy. Life won't be the same without that person around. And so it's this, it's this mix back and forth. Let me go on and read the rest of our passage this morning. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive One another with these words. Now, this passage—he goes on to talk in chapter five about not knowing the times and seasons. This passage of scripture is not—is not him trying to dispel and answer for the curious all the end times kinds of things. It's meant for our comfort. He says, "The dead, and the living, and the Lord." will be reunited on that day forever. And that's what we have to look forward to. Don't be uninformed, but believe the truth. Don't grieve hopelessly, but fill up your grief with the hope that we have in Christ. Now, here's the implied positive command to the Christian. Does it say anywhere in this passage not to grieve? No. In fact, it says this. I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Implying that grieving is a given. Grieving is a normal, healthy part. You would actually look at something as really, really wrong if those who you loved passed away and there wasn't a tear shed. There wasn't an emotion felt. We would look at that as horribly unhealthy. So grieve. But grieve as a Christian. And grieve uh, for a season. So how do you respond in your season of grief? This is not an exhaustive list, but let me just point out a few things. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Number one is to worship. I would point to Job here. In Job 1.20, it says this, Then Job arose, you know the calamity that comes upon Job. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked as shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is not a mindless, repeating, heartless mantra that we just start to automatically go into robot mode and somehow praise the Lord. He grieved the robe and the beard bit. You know what that was? That was the outward sign expressing this to the whole community. I am in the darkest Throes of despair right now. And I'm going to worship my God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He feared God. Remember last week? He feared God and his will and his purposes and his care above his own comfort, above his own pleasures in this world. We know that by his actions. I had a conversation with someone going through a very, very dark night, and they pop in once in a while when they're not doing well, and they say, how long is this going to take, this grieving thing? I said, man, I don't know. But I'm here for you. We're here together. He made this comment to me. He said, you know, sometimes people ask me if uh, why, why um, I haven't turned from God. And he said, you know, for me, of all the times when I turn from God. Why on earth would I turn from him now? Now Now's when I need him the most. So this guy in his pain, and he's experienced a lot of it, has continued to go to church. He's continued to be part of his community group. He's continued to have personal devotions. He's continued in his giving and in his ministry and in his prayer. You know what he's done? He's continued to live as a Christian. This sermon was written with a guitar in my hand. I had my guitar out a lot this week. We learned a few weeks ago, just a reminder, worship isn't singing. It doesn't equate just to singing. Aren't you so thankful for the gift of music? Especially in our grief. There's something about all these songs in the minor keys that give voice to our pain. And there's a comfort and a cleansing that goes on with that. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Did you know that? Laments. I went and counted it afresh this week. There's 58 of the 150 Psalms that you could classify as songs of lament, songs of grief. These are the lyrics of the dark night of the soul. David wrote many of them. He's moaning, he's sobbing, he's wailing. Over what? Over sin over death, over family infighting, over being wrongly accused, physical danger, wickedness in the culture. Sound familiar? I mean, these are our griefs, are they not? And here's the Scripture modeling for us, showing us how to enter into that and cry out in those moments. We just sang this song, When the Tears Fall. In the dark night of the soul, I will praise you. I think the first time, maybe not the first time, but we were asked to do a funeral of a baby that lived only moments. And the parents were ill-equipped to make decisions in that moment. But in meeting with them about the service, they said this, we want this to be a service that honors God. We want praise to go on. And whenever we sing that song, I can't help but remember that moment singing at that funeral And realizing the curse, but realizing the hope of Christ in a fresh and powerful way. So number one, you worship. Number two is to be thankful. It's not thankful for evil and pain. We've already busted that myth. That was the old days where you somehow thought it was a virtue to be in pain. But instead, trusting God to work out good and his glory, our good and his glory in his time. And that's the tough part sometimes. Thankful that he is. Remember Psalm 46 from last week? Thankful that he is, first of all. But thankful that he is our strength to move forward. Thankful that he is our fort that we can retreat back into. And thankful that he's an ever-present help in our time of need. Romans 1 talks about a mark of the godless. You know what it is? They refused to thank God. Now, you might be hearing me and say, well, that's completely unrealistic. Who lives this way? Who's thankful in all circumstances? Who actually worships in their calamity? Sitting at my desk, if you're facing kind of my computer off to my left, is the program from my dad's funeral. And on the cover of that is an awesome shot of my dad, because it looks just just that natural smile that he had most of the time. And underneath that picture... Read Psalm 118.24. It says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, that's a perfect verse for my dad for a number of reasons. One is, that's how he woke us up on Sunday mornings for church. My dad couldn't sing, and so to get him to stop, he would sing very loudly, singing this little tune over us. But more than what he sang is what he lived. And you might think that's unrealistic to to, to think someone lives that way. I watched it. I got to soak in that, marinade in a man who lived that way. And I took notice of it. Number three is to be humble. One of the things that's common but not acceptable in our grief is this. Shaking our fists at God, putting God on the stand, firing off questions to God. I know it's tempting to lash out, but it isn't true, and it isn't helpful. Next week, the emotion we're going to go after is doubt. So we're going to expand on this a little bit next week. But let me just say this. God is awfully patient with us. He really does give a lot of allowance for this, even in the Scriptures. God, where are you? How long, God? Are you even there? So there's an allowance for it. But it's not acceptable. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't know about you, but I read that list, I go, that sounds like a list of the cursed, rather than a list of the blessed. Jesus modeled humility. He's teaching us something, isn't he? God opposes the proud, James 4, 6 says, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. When do you need grace? In your time of grieving. While you're ranting about putting God on the stand, questioning, you know what you're not doing? You're not receiving from the Lord. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility, I think, is both a proper response of suffering, but it's also a fruit of suffering. One of the things that you walk away with in a deep time of grieving and suffering is humility. I wasn't in as control as I thought. I'm not as self-reliant as I had made myself out to be. I can't handle this. That's a great lesson to walk away with. Next is to Trust. Grieve and trust. Much of our life is a test, and severe suffering and grief are a little bit like midterms. Some of you were with us in the James series. We called it Do or Dead. It talked about faith and action. And one of the messages talked about not just surviving the good, bad, and the ugly, but thriving in it. How can we thrive in the good, bad, and the ugly? We talked about the idea that when we know what our trials are producing... That helps us. God, this is painful right now, but I trust you. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Do you believe it? In your grief, it's tested. We came up with some cowboy wisdom, which we affectionately called cowboys dumbs Here was the one for this week. When you lose, don't lose the lesson. God doesn't waste our pain. Our sovereign God isn't surprised by it, and he does not waste it. If you're in pain, maybe part of your prayer is, God, I want to soak out every ounce of what you've got for me in this. I want to stay here as long as you think it necessary. I don't want to clamor off it as quick as I can and miss what you have for me. Secondly was to run to Jesus in your trials and not away from your pain. We're so averse to discomfort. I mean, we're Northern Californians, for Pete's sake, right? We, we want the weather perfect. We want things comfy. We have a pain aversion. But if we live our life ever running and skirting pain, we're, we're going to end up in some places we don't want to be. Instead of running away from your pain, concentrate on running to Jesus. First Peter 1-6. Just write that down. 1 Peter 1-6. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Have you ever considered that your difficulties will give great glory to God? And here's the follow-up question. Is that enough for you? Would that be enough for you? I think about Johnny Erickson Tata and Brother Yoon and Corey Ten Boom and Jim Elliott and Brother Andrew. These are all phenomenal men and women of God who lived incredibly grievous lives here on earth. They suffered so much for God, and yet they show off so much of God. And millions, including myself, have been inspired and encouraged by their stories of faith. Here's the last one I have for you. is to cry out. Grieve and worship. Grieve and be thankful. Grieve and be humble. Grieve and trust. And grieve and cry out to God. If God is sovereign, do we still cry out? Yes. It's not an either or, it's a both and. God is sovereign and you cry out to Him. Trust implicitly in God's control and pray, cry, nag, talk to God about it. You know that Jesus gives us permission to nag Him in prayer? Go read about it. It's the persistent widow. Pray like this. Ask and keep on asking. Cry out to Him. But don't do it in a prideful way. Don't do it in a self-reliant way. Don't worship your comfort as you do it. Cry out to him with with these other areas in check. Let me invite the band to come up right now. I'll close with this. All of these things would be fruit of the Spirit. It would be evidence of fruit of the Spirit. And I'd say it's impossible to to do it this way uh, without his working and empowering. You may have been in the woods and seen a sign like this on the side of the road asking if your home is ready. Are you prepared for a wildfire? And it talks about clearing your home of debris. Let me ask you this. When is the best time to stand guard and prepare your home from a wildfire? Before it's coming, right? When's the best time to prepare, to prepare your soul from allowing the emotion of grief? devastate your life. It's now. God has you here now, today. Praise God that you're sitting in church this morning. I don't know why you came or who brought you here or what your motive was or whether there was any question mark this morning, but God has you here. And the way I want the rest of our morning to go is this. I've asked the band to just lead us in some... Instrumental music for a little season of time, and in that time, what I want to have happen is for us to be able to comfort one another, to pray for one another. Just listen to Second Corinthians chapter one verse three: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction." so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know what that verse is telling us? God is here to comfort you, and one of his means is the person on your left and on your right. We are to pass on the comfort that we've received from God. We're a steward of that, and we we now get to pass it on to other people. So this morning, there are hurting people in our midst. I wonder if you'd be so brave as to while the music plays, you could do one of a couple of things to indicate that. You could come forward. Some of you are uh, used to a tradition of coming forward to the altar. You could come up here, and this could just be a place of sanctuary where you just want to pray. If someone comes forward, would another one of you come and just put your arm around them? That sounds like a really giant step for some of you. And you say, wow, as much as I'm hurting, I don't think I'm going to do that. We're going to shut the lights off. It's going to be a quiet, intimate place. some music's going to be playing. Here's what I'd ask of you. Would you just raise your hand and leave it raised until someone else comes and takes your hand and comes and sits with you? God's given us feet that can move toward the hurting. God's given us arms that hold, God's given us ears that understand, God's given us tears that speak, and God's given us lips that sometimes just remain quiet and sit with someone. We don't need a giant counseling session in here, we need someone sitting with the hurting. So church, be the church this morning and go do it. There's already a hand up over here. Let's begin that right now and uh, as the band plays. Father, thank you for this morning. And God, thank you for comforting us, not just with words and instruction, but with compassion by entering in. We praise you and thank you for that. Amen.